So uh, back when I was in college, I spent a summer in Tanzania and uh, loved my time in Tanzania. Super fun. Uh, two of those weeks that I was in Tanzania, uh, I spent living out with uh, a local family out in the bush, right? Like so, um, it's kind of like Maasai territory, northern Tanzania, and man, it was a blast out there. Um, we got to see all sorts of stuff and experience all sorts of stuff. Um, and this couple that we were living with, um, this uh, he was, they were kind of this ministering couple, and uh, man, uh, the guy Isaac was just. Man, he was a fireball. Like he was just full of energy and and uh, just would always look for ways to share the gospel. And it was just awesome to to kind of follow him around and, and hear about his faith, hear some of his stories. Um, towards the end of our time there out in the bush, we were staying at actually at Isaac's house and his wife Asnet, and um, we uh, were spending some time there one day. Me and my uh, teammate, also from the states, and. Uh, uh, Isaac had been gone all day, and then uh, towards the evening, as the sun was starting to set, um, we uh, hear this honking right outside. And so we come out, and uh, Isaac is there with uh, sitting behind the seat of a truck. Well, the entire time we'd been out in the bush with Isaac, uh, we had never seen him actually drive a vehicle. So we were a little bit surprised, like, oh, hey, you, number one, uh, you're driving. That's interesting. Number two, you have a truck. Like, we didn't know you had a vehicle. And so uh, he was like, yes, uh, my driver was coming back with me from town, and we had a fight. And he walked away. So I drove the truck back. We were like, oh, okay. He's like, yes, so this is my truck. Uh, It is the gift of God. Like, all right, Uh, sounds good. Well, congratulations. He's like, yes, get in. I will take you for a drive. And so we're like, all right. So we all pile in the car and uh, pile in the truck, and uh, he starts driving around. And we realize very quickly, like, oh, Isaac has no clue how to drive, right? Like zero clue. Um, and, and, and we're going around in uh, white knuckles. We're just holding on anything um, as he's, like, dodging people. And, uh, I mean, he's just flying through the town. And uh, my teammate asks, he's like, Isaac, um, has, has anyone ever taught you how to drive? And he goes, oh, brother, God taught me how to drive. <laughs> we, said, we said, oh, brother, you need some more lessons. Um, I don't know if this is a good idea. So we get, back, we get back to his house and we're talking. He goes, yeah, tomorrow I'm, I'm going to take the truck in because I, I, I need to head into town, which is about 45, uh, 45 minutes or an hour away. And we said, Isaac, we can't let you do that. <laughs> this is a terrible idea. You're going to kill yourself or a lot of people. Um, so he said, tell you what, Isaac, uh, why don't you let us drive? Uh, we'll, we'll take you in. And so, uh, so he agreed after, after some coercings, and so uh, we figured we could use the opportunity to maybe give him some lessons as well. And so uh, my teammate drove the truck that morning on the way to town, um, and it was a great drive. I sat in the back in the bed of the truck. Um, the roads, of course, are all dirt, you know, and real bumpy. Um, but it was kind of fun, right? Here we are out in the middle of the bush. Um, they have something there called uh, Maasai taxis, which actually are just uh, pickup trucks. Um, and then they just pile everything into the back of a pickup truck. Uh, and so we had seen them, but it was fun to, like, actually kind of feel like you were in one, except without all of the danger, because there weren't 50 people in the back of the pickup truck. It was, like, just me. Um, and so it was fun. We get into town, and we spend the day there. Uh, he's doing some business. Well, I know it's going to be my turn. I'm the one who's supposed to drive back. 
And so the day uh, goes on, and as it's getting closer, I'm starting to get a little bit nervous, but I'm like, you know, it'll be fine. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I've driven before. Yeah, it's on the other side of the road, so i got to, like, sit on the other side of the car. And it was a stick shift, so I had to, like, instead of shifting with this hand, I had to shift with this hand. Like, yeah, it'll be fine. Um, so I'm, I'm starting to think about this, and then as, as, as we start getting closer to leaving, uh, I notice, like, there's a few people hanging around the truck, like people I have no idea who they are. And um, then a few more people come. And then uh, some people come and they like move a, a cabinet into the back of the truck and then sit down. So like Isaac is walking by. I was like, hey, Isaac, what, um, what's going on with those other people? And he was like, oh, I have a truck. I have a Maasai taxi. They will pay me money and we can take them home. It's like, Isaac, I'm driving. Like, I don't know if I'm okay with this. He's like, oh, it will be fine. God will take care of us. Okay, so I, I stand there. I'm getting more and more nervous about this whole process. Uh, meanwhile, the back of the truck is just getting fuller and fuller. Someone brings a goat, right, and they get into the back of the truck um, until finally, I mean, it's standing room only. People, I mean, people are just piled in the back of the truck. Uh, I think there were 45 people. Like, this is a normal-sized pickup truck. Okay, 45 people in the back of the truck. Um, and then in the front, uh, by the time it was ready to go, uh, they let some women come and sit in the front. Normal size front seat, so obviously I'm in the driver's seat, and then next to me are four women, right? Uh, four women all crammed in the front, and I've got this mama sitting next to me. Um, and uh, unfortunately, right, because they've crammed them in so much, like she is, she is very, very close to me uh, and uh, is sitting there, right, with her, her, her legs uh, and f- there, and this, the stick shift, right, is like literally right, uh, right between her legs. And so I get in, I'm like, all right, well, here we go. This is a situation I did not think I'd find myself in. And man, I just started to pray, like, Lord, please help, please help. So I uh, put the key in the ignition, and I turn it, uh, and it starts, I seem to have trouble with cars, don't I? Um, and it dies, right? Okay. Uh, so I start it again, um, and then uh, it, it keeps on going. So I, I start to go, and I'm just, like, creeping along, right? And as I'm starting to creep along, I'm, like, ner- nervously reaching over, right? Like, hi. Uh, and kind of, you know, touching the stick shift. Um, and, and as I shift into second, like, this truck is so old, it's like, oh, I can't tell where I'm shifting. I don't know if I'm in second or if I'm in fourth or even if I'm in, I might even be in reverse, right? I have no idea. So I'm just hoping and praying that I'm in the right gear. And as I shift, like, it was the wrong gear and, and the, the truck shakes and shudders and then dies. Then the keys fall out onto the floorboard. I'm like, oh, this is wonderful, right? We've got a 45-minute hour-long uh, drive and the sun is starting to set. Lord, please help. So I, I take, find, <laughs> dig down the keys, uh, get them, pop them back in, uh, and I start. This happens several times, and finally, we get going. I know everybody in the back. Uh, you can hear them chuckling a little bit every now and then when we stop, right? Like, who is this white guy, and uh, who let this inexperienced guy drive our, our Maasai taxi? Anyway, so we start, head around the corner, and man, I can feel the weight of the truck, right? Like, so anytime we take a corner, the whole truck just like kind of shifts, right? 
And so I'm just like, as we're going along, I'm like seeing newspaper headlines flashing in my mind, like American held in jail for killing dozens of Tanzanians, right? Or like, uh, I mean, we're out in the middle of nowhere. We're out in the middle of the bush, right? So then I'm thinking like, you know, uh, American, comma, Tanzanians uh, mauled by lions as they're stranded on the side of the road. I'm like imagining worst case scenario and praying like I have never prayed before. Man, we're going along. Uh, finally, we're picking up speed. And I'm realizing if I just don't stop, right, uh, then I'm actually pretty good. So, so as we're needing to drop people off, it's like I'm wanting to stop as little as possible. Um, but sometimes we have to stop. As we're getting a little bit farther, though, we're we're starting to go, okay, we're starting to go up a little bit of a hill, going around the corner, and there out in front, of course, is a whole, like, herd, flock of sheep, whatever you call it, a group of sheep. Anyway, yeah, so it's a, they're all right out there in the middle of the road, uh, just standing. And so I, I slow down. I'm like, please, clear out of the way before I get there. They don't. And so I stop. Of course, the keys fall out of the ignition again. And so there we are in the middle of the road. And this time when I go down to look for the keys, like, I can't find them anywhere. So I'm searching down, looking for the keys. I'm, like, having to, excuse me, mama, right? I'm, like, searching under her dress, trying not to uh, offend her or anything. By the time I finally find the keys and, like, pop back up, there's nobody in the road, nothing in the road. We're just sitting there uh, in the middle of the road. I put the keys back in, get started. Man, it took forever. It seemed like hours and hours and hours before we finally made it back. Uh, there at the last, the last stretch, right, we had to climb this hill on our way to, uh, into their village. And there was a church on the way, and a, a pastor we knew was riding in the back, and he wanted to get dropped off at the, um, at the church. And so as we're going the hill, it's like, no, I'm not stopping. And so I just like yelled to him, like, just jump, <laughs> right? And so we're going, and he's like trying to figure out, and he's like, oh, okay. So we, I like kind of slow down just a little bit, and we like kind of like, they like in the back kind of like help him jump off, and we make it to the top of the hill and uh, end up at Isaac's house safely. Boy, I don't know if I've ever pr- prayed so hard in all of my life. And I'll always remember the time uh, that I drove a Maasai taxi. It's not something I'd like to do again. Every now and then, though, we have these experiences, don't we? Uh, where we feel like our, our, our faith in God is really put to the test. Like, normally, when I go through everyday life, uh, I may say that I trust God, but in reality, I don't have anything going on that like, really forces me to question whether or not I actually trust God. Right? It's like, yeah. I trust God. We're good, right? I believe in God. But then there's these moments where it's like, oh my, if something happens, I am completely and totally screwed, right? God, I need your help. I need you here. And I'm putting myself completely and totally upon your mercy. Well, God, when he speaks to Israel, tells them this about himself. I am a God who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And I think this is, this is good news for us as we wrestle with this question. Can we really trust God? Um, there's two words here uh, in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, that God uses to describe himself. Um, the first word, uh, I'll give you some Hebrew here, 
just for fun. This first one is fun to say anyway. Um, the Hebrew word is chesed. Can you guys say chesed? You gotta like add the at the front of it, right? Like chesed. So let's try it one more time. Chesed. Very good. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. So this word just means like steadfast love, okay? Uh, some of your translations may say mercy or something like that. But the idea here um, is really, it refers to honoring a commitment or uh, honoring the terms of your relationship. In other words, showing chesed to someone means that you show them mercy because of the commitment that you've made to them, okay? The other word used here is uh, the word emmet, okay? Uh, this is actually where we got the name for our oldest son, emmet. Uh, it's a word that means truth or faithfulness. Or, in many contexts, um, reliability, right? So if you are a man of emmet, you are a man of truth or reliability or integrity. What you say, you are going to do, okay? So, uh, these words frequently appear together, chesed and emmet. Um, And when they do, I think you get these separate ideas, yes. But also, really, you have um, a new idea that comes out, and that is one of covenant loyalty. In other words... If I am going to show you chesed and emmet, I am going to be completely and totally faithful or reliable or loyal to whatever promise I've made to you. So Genesis chapter 47, verse 29. Here we have Joseph um, sitting with his father, Jacob or Israel, at the end of his life, right? And uh, as Israel kind of beats there with Joseph, he says to Joseph these words. If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh. This is awkward. For them, they were making a commitment, right? A covenant. Yeah, I won't do it to you. Uh, Put your hand under my thigh, right? Uh, And promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Well, actually, the same exact phrase occurs here as occurs in Exodus 34, verse 6. Please deal with me in chesed and emmet. Do not bury me in Egypt. In other words, he's saying... Make a promise to me because of your, uh, your, our relationship, your commitment to me as your father. Make a promise that you will not bury me in Egypt. Instead, take me back to my own land and bury me there, which Joseph does, right? And so these words together express more than just steadfast love and truth. They really express a covenant loyalty. And so when God chooses to describe himself, he uses these words. I am someone who is inherently loyal, someone who keeps his commitment. This is actually good news. Remember where we're at in Exodus chapter 34? The golden calf incident has just caused all of the people to question whether or not God will actually stay with them. And so for Moses, really wrestling with, is God going to be with us or not, to hear these words from God himself must be a great encouragement to him. God describes himself as a God who is inherently loyal, who will not abandon his covenant. In many ways, then, I think this idea is developed uh, more in Psalm 89 than it is anywhere else in the Old Testament. And so let's just go ahead and turn there for a minute. In fact, if you look uh, through the Old Testament uh, for these words, Chesed and Enem, what you'll find is that it occurs more in Psalm 89. There's a higher concentration of these words there really than anywhere else in in the whole Old Testament. Psalm 89 
is, in many ways, a question of God's loyalty. Is God a loyal God? And it starts off, really, in verses 1 through 18, by describing God's loyalty, God's faithfulness through the created order, right? Um, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever, verse 1, with my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Uh, Steadfast love, verse 2, will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. Um, And so he he goes on in Psalm 89, the writer, to talk about how God has expressed this in the created order and in the commitment that God has made to his people. God has expressed himself. It's kind of a hymn of praise to God who is a faithful and a loyal God, right? Right? And so we read some of this stuff and and we agree wholeheartedly. Yes, amen. God is totally reliable. God is totally loyal to the promises that he made. Um, Goes on to talk about all of these these different uh, areas in which God has been faithful. But then in the second section, really in verses 19 through 37, it shifts. And now we begin to talk about uh, God's loyalty specifically to his covenant with David. Right? Um, In uh, King David, God had decided to create a line, right? And through this line, he would bring his Messiah. God's loyalty to his commitment to David is seen all throughout Israel's history as we move from king to king to king to king, right? And so the writer here of Psalm 89 is, is kind of reflecting all of that and saying, Yes, God, you've been so faithful. Even when we weren't faithful to you, you have been faithful to us. You've walked with us through difficult times. You've shown your faithfulness to us. You've preserved David's throne from generation to generation. In many ways, you are proving the words you said to David even um, as we witness history unfold. Listen, he says... uh, In verse 30, this is what God had said. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and don't keep my commandments, then I'll punish them. But verse 33, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not remove from him my chesed or be false to my emmet, right? He will be loyal, God says, even when people aren't loyal to him. And so the author of Psalm 89, I think, is really rejoicing in this great act of God, that he's been so loyal throughout all of history. But then something happens as we get towards the end of the psalm. Verse 38, we take a turn, and we move from what's felt like a hymn of praise to almost this angry lament. And all of a sudden, the writer of Psalm 89 is is questioning everything. This is what he says, verse 38, but now you have cast off and rejected You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant. That's a pretty major accusation against God. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You see, the writer of Psalm 89 is writing not early on in Israel's history, but he's writing after the exile. He's writing after the people uh, have sinned so much that God has finally said, okay, that's enough. You now have to leave your land. They've been taken away into captivity. And so, while the writer of Psalm 89 says, yes, God, I see your faithfulness in creation, and yes, God, I see your faithfulness in our history, how you were loyal to David, now I'm looking around and asking, well, where did it go? You said you'd never leave us, 
but how come we're stuck in Babylon? You said you would never abandon us, but how come it feels like we're completely and totally alone? The end of Psalm 89 is raw and honest, and I think if we're honest, actually reflects a state we find ourselves in from time to time. God, I thought you said you would never leave me, so how come I'm going through all this stuff? I thought you said you would never abandon me, so how come I feel so alone right now? Right? And as the psalm kind of moves to an end, you get this, you get this sense that the writer is pleading with God, will you please return? Will you please bring back your covenant loyalty? Verse 49, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insult of the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. This really is, I think, the heart of our struggle many times from day to day. Can God really be trusted? Is he reliable? Is God present when my life seems to be falling apart. I think, in many ways, as we wrestle with this, um, Psalm 89 reflects uh, the questions that so many of us have. However, as Psalm 89 ends, some people think it's just an addition onto the end of the book. I actually think uh, verse 52 is a part of the psalm. I think the psalmist, even at the end, even after questioning The faithfulness of God ends with these words in verse 52. Yet blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. The Hebrew word for amen is amen. Amen. It comes from the word emet. And it means it is true. It is reliable. I think here at the end of the psalm, the psalmist is saying, God, I don't understand and I don't get it. I don't see how you're continuing to be loyal to your covenant. But even if I can't see it, I'm going to still choose to trust you. Amen and amen. And with these questions, actually, uh, our Old Testament ends. If you read through the Old Testament, um, you, you read this you know, great story of faith and great story of God working in so many ways. Uh, but then it kind of ends on a low note, right? Like the people end up back in the land after the exile, but really they've never seen the glory that they once had. And the prophets seem to be pointing forward to this great day coming, but we, we never see that day actually realized. And so you end the Old Testament kind of wondering, like, that's it? Is there anything else? I mean, what next? Right? And I think Psalm 89, written towards the end of our Old Testaments, is asking that question. God, where did you go? What have you done? Are you done with us? Can we trust you at all? And yet, I think it ends with faith. And so then, as we think about the New Testament then, and how that fits into this, I think one of the most helpful passages for us to go to is Romans 15. If Psalm 89 is the epicenter for the Old Testament and talking about the covenant loyalty of God, I think in many ways, Romans 15 is the epicenter of the New Testament for talking about the covenant loyalty of God. So let's go ahead and turn there real quick. And we'll finish up our time together discussing this. 
If the question of Psalm 89 and really of the end of the Old Testament is, has God abandoned us? Is God reliable? Can we trust him? I think in Romans 15, Paul answers these questions in a very full way, right? He says, Romans 15, verse 8, listen. For I tell you, he says, that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. That is the Hebrew word for, uh, the Hebrew word for that is emet, right? The New Testament was written in Greek, so it's not an exact parallel, but this is the way to say in Greek the word we use in Hebrew, emet. In other words, Paul says, God became, uh, Christ became a servant to the circumcised to prove that God was eminent, that he was faithful or true, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. But then in verse 9, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. That word, I think, is the equivalent of our Hebrew word, chesed. In other words, I think what Paul is saying is that in Jesus, these two ideas, the, the truthfulness of God and the mercy of God, are brought to full expression. And in fact, in the verses that follow, Paul goes on to quote from the law and the prophets and the writings of the Old Testament in order to prove Jesus is the answer to the question of God's loyalty. Is God loyal or faithful to his promises? Of course he is. Look at what he has done in Jesus. And so I think what this text does is really brings the Testaments together. What about God's compassion that we talked about last night? What about God's anger that we talked about this morning? I think they both see their fullest expression in Jesus. The reality of his wrath is real, but the reality of his grace is more uh, more apparent than ever before as it's revealed most fully in the sacrifice of Jesus. And so then I think Jesus is the fullest expression of God's covenant loyalty. And so as Paul moves through the rest of these quotations, he ends in verse 13 with these words. Therefore, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So by, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. For people who are struggling to hold on to hope, this is the answer. For people who feel like God has abandoned them, Romans 15 says, no, God has not abandoned you. God is right with you. He is taking care of you. And in fact... Because of Jesus, you can have hope like you have never had hope before. Jesus is the fullest expression of God's covenant loyalty. So what does this mean for us? Right? What does this mean for us as we sit here and try to understand how to see God and how God sees us? Well... I think first and foremost, it helps us realize that we can see the Testaments together. Okay? We don't have to see one God of the Old Testament and then one God of the New. 
right? I think it's, it's the same God all along. It's the same story he's been telling all along. And there's a great consistency in his character from one testament to the other. We can rejoice that he is a faithful God. But in the end then, I think what we realize from this is that God is good so I can believe his promises. What God says is actually true. I can believe it. As I then think, how does God see us? What is our relationship to God? How should I see God's opinion of me? And as we move this into our life, then I think we need to realize this as well. God is not going to abandon me. Even when life gets tough and difficult, even when I feel so frustrated and fed up with life that I don't know what else to do, God is right there with me. Even when it seems like life may not be worth living. Maybe you've been there before where your sin just becomes too much for you to handle. Maybe the pit you've dug for yourself is too deep for you to claw your way out. Maybe it's not your own sin. Maybe it's the suffering and abuse that you've endured at the hands of others. Maybe that's what's left you feeling worthless and hopeless. And maybe in those moments of worthlessness, maybe in those moments of desperation, you feel completely and totally alone and abandoned. But here's the reality. God will not abandon you. He will not. God is a faithful God who is more loyal than we could possibly imagine. And he will not abandon you. Even when everyone has seemed to walk out on you and you feel all alone. Maybe things got tough and now no one is left standing with you. Maybe it's your own choices that has driven people away. Maybe you aren't great at letting people in. And now you just realize that you feel completely and totally alone. Even in those moments, God will not abandon you. So if God won't abandon you, then there's nothing you can do when God's presence will not be walking with you and alongside of you, guiding and directing you. In fact, I think that means that uh, no matter what you want to do, no matter what uh, opportunities lay before you, maybe some opportunities that bring you great fear, God's promise is that he'll continue to be with you. That he will not abandon you in the midst of those. One of the greatest um, adventures of our life for my wife and I uh, was getting the opportunity to move to the Middle East. We trusted that this is what God wanted us to do, but I don't, I don't think we realized like, how much faith it was going to take for us to, to move there um, when we said yes. But we sensed this is what God wanted to do, and so we went. And man, we loved our time living in the Middle East. It was hard. There were so many things about it where uh, we, we just would, would scratch our heads and think, what in the world are we doing? How do we end up on the other side of the world from what we call home? And there were some really difficult moments when we really felt isolated and all alone. 
And yet, I can honestly say, I don't know if I've, I've ever felt the presence of God more tangibly than in those dark moments on the other side of the world. God promises that he will not abandon you. So if God is with me, what's holding me back from doing whatever it is that God may want me to do? I can go. I can step out in faith because, number one, I know that God loves me, right? He is a compassionate and merciful God, and he loves me deeply. I also know that God's not angry with me, right? So I don't have to do it because I feel guilty. I don't have to do some act of service in order to like sort of gain my salvation with God. We're good, right? He's not angry with me. But I also know that now that he's not going to abandon me. And so I can go where he wants me to go, and I can do what he wants me to do, not in some way to earn his favor or earn my salvation, but because it's this, this great adventure that he calls us on, this great invitation that he issues to us to be a part of what he is already doing in the world. We have nothing to be afraid of because God is with us. You know, Moses hears these words at the end of Exodus uh, chapter 34. We see him return down the mountain. When he comes down, though, something happens, right? You guys talked about this a few months ago, I think, on your Thursday night. Uh, But there, as Moses starts to walk down the mountain, he doesn't even realize it. Uh, But as he walks down the mountain, the skin of his face shone. Why did the skin of his face shine? I think it's because of Exodus 34, verse 6. Remember, Moses asked to see God's glory. And God said, okay, I'll let all of my goodness pass before you. But then he covered with him with his hand. And as he passed by, he just spoke these words. I think these words were the revelation of God to Moses that produced the transformation in him. And as he starts to walk down from the mountain... He has been changed. Because number one, he sees how God sees him. And he sees how God sees Israel. And because he understands how God relates to them, now he has a better understanding of who God is himself. And it literally changes his face. He's transformed. He comes down the mountain, everyone runs away, right? It's a scary Moses with this shining face, and they're freaking out. And so whenever Moses talks to them, he has to uh, speak to them, right? And I I can kind of imagine it's like looking at the sun, right? They like sort of look, but they don't really want to look. And then when he finishes speaking, he puts a veil over his face to stop the shining from doing the damage to the Israelites that they're complaining it's doing. And Paul, in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, picks up this idea and says, yes, Moses had to wear the veil as he came down the mountain. 
because in many ways, their hearts were hard. Their hearts were hardened, and because of their sin, they couldn't bear the glory on Moses' face. So Moses wore a veil, in many ways, to keep them from dying. They just couldn't handle the greatness of the glory that was reflecting off the face of Moses. And yet Paul says, when we turn to Christ, the veil is removed. And now all of us with unveiled faces get to gaze on the glory of God. And Paul says, it transforms us. I don't think he was just being poetic. I think he's serious. It actually changes us. As we behold the glory of God and we understand how he sees us and how we should see him, it changes us and we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. I don't know if if there's something from this weekend that you feel like uh, has been challenged about your perspective of God. Um, But I want you to take a minute right now to just kind of stop uh, and think back through. Maybe it's just in this last session here. Maybe it's in some of the times we've shared together before. But um, I want you to just pause and meditate. What is it that we need to shift? What is it that I need to shift in my perspective about God? Maybe in how he sees me? Maybe in how I see him. What is it that I need to shift? What is it that I need to change in order to allow his transformation to happen in my heart? And then what I want you to do is turn around, maybe kind of like we did last night, uh, to two or three or four people next to you. And I want you guys to to talk about this together. Maybe um, even spend a few minutes praying together for each other um, and talking through what this actually is looks like, okay? So why don't you go ahead, turn around, and talk to some of those who are new.